0: Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast, and today I want to talk specifically about the Lend-Lease Agreement and President Roosevelt's Arsenals of Democracy speech. So we're really going to cover everything from 1940 through to 1941. And a good place to start is the presidential election of 1940, that Roosevelt wins that year against the uh, Republican contender, Wendell Wilkie. Now, this was the um, beginnings of Roosevelt's third term in office. There was nothing constitutionally to say that he couldn't have a third term in office, but protocol and tradition established since Washington uh, meant that presidents didn't do this. Roosevelt had seen America through two of his presidencies through the Great Depression And now the spectre of world war was uh, looming, not just for countries like Britain who were already fighting it, but for countries like America who were, at at that point, far from impartial spectators. And the rationale of re-election, re-electing the president, was really to stick with a figure who had already been seen as a safe pair of hands steering America through some very, very difficult waters. His opponent, Wilkie, was a relative unknown and a surprise choice for the Republicans. He was uh, a businessman who accused Roosevelt of failing to uh, address the Great Depression. And in in many ways, Wilkie had plenty of justification. Unemployment hadn't significantly reduced by the end of the 1930s, and it was only really rearmament from 1940 and 1941 onwards that finally brings America to full prosperity again. Wilkie was strongly isolationist, and whilst Roosevelt favoured intervention privately, there's no way he could have articulated those views to the public. Roosevelt had to navigate his way through the election, articulating a non-interventionist standpoint and yet still retaining some freedom of movement for America for later on. In the event, Roosevelt wins a comfortable victory and by December of that year, his tone has noticeably changed. In December, when he makes his normal regular fireside chat, which are the uh, broadcasts he'd made to America throughout the 1930s uh, to try to reinstall some kind of faith in government and some sense amongst the American people that the president cared and was um, concerned about them, he has a much, much darker message. When he made his famous arsenals of democracy speech, He wasn't really saying anything that American people hadn't already heard. Earlier on in that year, prominent journalists had begun to uh, uh, articulate that uh, America had become an arsenal for the democratic allies and that whilst Britain and the French were doing much of the fighting, America was supplying munitions, finances and raw materials such as oil and foodstuffs. However, by... December of 1940, the position has very much changed. France has fallen, and with the fall of France, a series of strategic disasters have uh, have taken place. Britain is now in bombing range of Germany. The British fight a desperate battle for the skies over their own country in the summer of 1940, and only really managed to save themselves by about October of that year. The question of the future of the Suez Canal is also uh, hanging in the balance. Whilst the British throughout 1940 have spectacular successes against the Italians, Roosevelt is mindful of the fact that the British are overstretched and weak and it would only take, for example, a crusading German Africa Corps, who are obviously transported to North Africa the following year, to seriously threaten the Suez Canal and Middle Eastern oil. To emphasize the gravity of the crisis, Roosevelt sp- spoke in very clear terms. He said, we face this new crisis, this new threat to our security of our nation with the same courage and realism. Never before since Jamestown and Plymouth Rock has our American civilization been in such danger as now. For, on September twenty seventh, 1940, this year, by an agreement signed in Berlin, three powerful nations, two in Europe and one in Asia, joined themselves together in the threat that if the United States of America interfered with or blocked the expansion programme of these three nations, a programme aimed at world control, they would unite in ultimate action against the United States. The Nazi masters of Germany have made it clear that they intend not only to dominate all life and thought in their own country, but also to enslave the whole of Europe and then to use these resources of Europe to dominate the rest of the world. This kind of rhetoric brought home to the American people specifically how vulnerable they were. A sense of invulnerability had existed in America following World War I because of the physical isolation of America the fact that it is sandwiched between two oceans, Roosevelt makes the point in the speech that those days are over, that aircraft can reach America from Europe, and that um, the the seas are not safe for American shipping either. Roosevelt, in his speech, didn't advocate that US soldiers be committed to the fight in Europe, but that, uh, um, that British soldiers uh, continue the fighting themselves but that they be backed wholeheartedly by the american cooperation churchill was desperate for america to enter the fray and churchill dispatched various diplomats agents and propagandists to washington to try to sway public opinion in the direction of joining the fight in 1937 the uh, american Government had signed into being the Neutrality Acts, uh, which forbade American manufacturers from um, getting involved with either side of the conflict. These Neutrality Acts are watered down by 1939 when the Cash and Carry Agreement with the British is signed. As long as the British pay cash for their armaments and then carry them from American shores with their own ships, then America can't be seen to be really taking sides. It's just an impartial tradesmen. However, the arsenals of democracy speech really um, put it to the American people that America wasn't really impartial anymore and that her cause was rather similar to the British cause, that democracy was threatened and therefore America herself was threatened. The final step in the process towards war happens in 1941 with the Lend-Lease Agreement. The Lend-Lease Deal is signed in March 1941, a good nine months before America enters the war. Tellingly, it is officially titled An Act to Further Promote the Defense of the United States. Clearly, American policy at this time was one of using material given to key allies to confront Nazism, where and ever it may be, but not actually doing the fighting themselves. Hitler pretty much completely interpreted the Lend-Lease Agreement as, as an act of war, and from that moment onwards saw the clock ticking towards war with America. Hitler had, in his various works, suggested that a war with America would be inevitable eventually, but Hitler had a clear timetable for this. Hitler did not intend really for war to break out with America until Russia had been fully conquered. However, we've got to take what Hitler writes with a pinch of salt. When he writes books like Mein Kampf and De right book afterwards, um, really you are interpreting the, the kind of the, the, the wish, the wishes or, and dreams of someone who never really liked reality to intrude upon his plans. America, by this point, had already begun mobilising for war It had its very own peacetime draft, and it had started mass war production anyway. And it's interesting that part of the Lend-Lease Agreement is devoted not just to helping Britain, but also to helping Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist China to stand up against the Japanese, another country that America isn't as of yet at war with. In 1940 also, the British and the Americans had signed a Destroyers for Bases Agreement where 50 rather dilapidated destroyers from the USA, which turned out to be, in some instances, more trouble than they were worth to the Royal Navy, uh, were swapped for bases uh, in the Caribbean that the Americans could use. When the Land Lease Agreement was signed in America, there was broad support for it, But again, because there was the feeling that it would keep America out of the war, that the British would be doing the fighting and that they would be trading equipment for security. Now, if we're evaluating the long-term significance of all of this, you can probably boil it down to a few key points. Firstly, the British now had an unlimited line of credit uh, provided by the Americans and by 1943, uh, pretty much One quarter of all the equipment that the British had, particularly transport aircraft, had come from the United States. The United States were producing aircraft at something like the rate of one every 50 minutes from a production line. And bear in mind, Boeing had production lines and Lockheed and other um, manufacturers had production lines, hundreds of production lines up and down the country. In many ways, World War Two was the ultimate war of production and having the productive power of the USA behind the British is one of the key factors that enables Britain to continue fighting. And then obviously the USA to join in the fight fairly shortly afterwards. After July 1941, the Soviet Union is also the recipient of this aid. And amazingly, at the Tehran Conference in 1943, Joseph Stalin acknowledged publicly that without US war production, the war would have been lost. I think perhaps a more cynical way of looking at it was the way in which Senator Robert Taft uh, of Roosevelt's administration put it. He said, lending war material is very much like lending chewing gum. You don't want it back. The Lend-Lease Agreement was abruptly cancelled in August 1945, following the end of the war, and it was something that would leave the British with enormous financial dilemmas over ever since. Um, The British were rather hoping for a kind of uh, a friendly loan or indeed grant of aid at the end of the war, which would reflect the fighting that they did from September 1939 to December 1941. They were to be sorely disappointed and the future viability of Britain was deeply rocked in 1945 and 1946. But that, as they say, is another story. Anyway, if you'd like to know a bit more about this, uh, visit my site. It is www.explaininghistory.com. We've got a newsletter there. I'll be putting something out about the Lend-Lease Agreements fairly shortly. You can sign up to this podcast every week. And there will be some exciting developments coming soon with uh, the Explaining History online learning portal, which is on the way, but more about that later. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll catch you on the next podcast.